you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends, and welcome. Tyler Johnson is my guest today. He is a former Division I student-athlete at Nichols State University. He was a member of the 2018 Southland Conference Championship team and played a big role on a defensive front that led the nation in both sacks and tackles for loss in 2017 and 2018. We first met when I was a guest speaker for their football team in 2018, and he has since become part of my one-on-one coaching program which Tyler will tell you provides valuable insight on his journey to FIRE, which is the acronym for Financial Independence Retire Early, of course. So Tyler recently graduated from Medical Sales College in Dallas, Texas. He has just in the past few weeks landed a a great gig with the cardiac division of an industry-leading company. I'm really impressed. Just landed his first real job and is fully aware of the FIRE movement, I wouldn't bet against this dude getting there fast. He's keeping his expenses at a reasonable level. And once the big paychecks start rolling in, he is going to save and invest a large portion of those. In today's episode, we discuss the importance of not letting a bad play boil over into a bad day, which is a lesson he learned playing college football, but also serves as a metaphor for everyday living. He tells the story of playing in front of 105,000 fans at Texas A&M. I love those stories. Tyler also talks about the peace that comes from finding joy in life versus chasing happiness and what he calls the widespread delusion in American society. We also get into race relations in America, what his grandmother taught him about integration in the 60s that may surprise you, at least it did me, and then also books that have changed Tyler's thinking. You'll quickly realize listening to Tyler why he's one of my favorite students. He's well, wise beyond his years, and his future is so bright that I often wear shades on our weekly calls. (laughs) That's not the reason, actually. I'll put on sunglasses and go for a walk while we're talking if I know that I don't need my laptop for the call. Please enjoy my chat with Mr. Tyler Johnson. Tyler, welcome. I'm so glad you're here in NOLA with me, brother. Thank you. It's good to be here. You were telling me you, you used to come to blows with teammates over what were y'all playing like playstation playstation uno um sequence any cart go fish anything competitive (laughs) it would get almost violent because we hated losing so much and do you think that's why you guys won didn't you win a southland conference championship i'm almost positive that's why that 2018 season it was it was a special group because of how close-knit we were but on top of that we just hated losing it was it pained us to lose at anything a rep um <laughs> the bottle flips it was bad we, we we've almost almost been late to practice before because coach put a ping pong table in and it would be it was incredible how competitive everyone was not just a couple dudes but everyone from so, the punter all the way to the so practice must be the same way practice yeah so drills <laughs> everything, that's got to make a team a winning team everything was competitive and coach rebo knew it he's brilliant he knows exactly how to place us into exactly how to push and pride to get the most out of us and um, 
he did it. <laughs> he would just it'd be perfect. Uh, he would do certain things and let the offensive lineman like take a break in between one of their periods just to know that they'd be a little bit more fresh and to piss us off as a defensive line. So we'd want to go harder the next period. It was just everything was calculated with that guy. And it was it took a while for me to realize. But when I realized it. That's right, because you didn't take to Coach Rebo well at first. No. And it was a lot of me being a knucklehead and not being trusting for whatever reason. Being a knucklehead, just being young. Being young and difficult. I just used to be a very difficult person because I was always I always needed to know the why behind things. To someone who doesn't really have a relationship with you yet, they don't understand that from you. It can come off as questioning them and questioning their authority or questioning, you know, why they make a certain decision. But to me it's just I'm just inquisitive. Like I just wanted to know, you know, like, I just if I can't see the the value of doing something, it's hard for me to do it. At that point. I get it now that you have to trust the leadership there there for a reason. Uh, whether you necessarily agree with it in the moment or not. But Well, I'm always saying that the best trait to have would be gratitude. I can't think of a, a higher quality, better trait that would more facilitate a, a fulfilling life than that of gratitude. But maybe a close second is what you talked about, inquisitive curiosity is a is a if you have a lot of curiosity, intellectual curiosity, that's gonna take you a long way. And the way I was raised, and I I couldn't stand being told to do something and then being told the reason was because I said so. That bothered me to no end. And I always told myself, if I ever get in a position of authority, I'm going to over-communicate. I'm going to explain why it is that I'm telling you to do something as much as it might pain me to have to explain to a five-year-old who a lot of people feel don't deserve your time, I guess, you know, like you're not worthy of me having to spend 90 seconds explaining why I'm telling you to do something. But what you're saying is that that's how you probably were brought up. You were given the why. In my later childhood, early on, it was you do it because I say so. It was different then because it was a relationship. It was the building of a relationship in the trust um, of you know my parents and myself and my, my grandma had a lot to do with raising me as well. Um, my mom's mom did. And as I got older, it kind of shifted into, well, this is why. And I want you to learn how to think, but I also want you to understand how to respond to authority because you're going to have someone in authority at all, in all levels of life, you know, until you reach a certain level when you get, you know, maybe FI, you know, then you can kind of do what you want to do. But FI, financial independence. Yeah. Some people might be surprised to hear a 25 year old mention those words, but. You're on that track. Absolutely. You're going to achieve that, I have no doubt. So you were raised in Napoleonville, Louisiana? Yes, a lot of sugar cane and two red lights. (laughs) What was that like growing up in a town so tiny? It was interesting. Uh, Your close friends were literally close to you. A lot of shared experiences. And I grew up in the church. Uh, Catholic? Baptist, actually. Okay. Dad was a Baptist pastor. But funny enough, the way he... So it's kind of hard for... For people to, to grasp it, but he didn't make my brother and I be, try to believe anything. You know, he he just let us know that what it had done for him. And as odd as that sounds, it's you would think a pastor is going to always be pushy and you know just trying to push you towards religion or going to church and, and all those different things. But it was more of I want you to choose this because I can't I can't push salvation on you. Either something you choose or something you don't choose. Even as a 10, 11, 12 year old, he's given you that option. We had to go, 
just had to go to church. We had okay. to go. Yeah, that wasn't an option. Yeah, yeah. But again, I mean, it just for me it made sense because if his kids aren't even showing up to church, how could he in any way lead a congregation, especially early on? But once I got into like high school, you know, later later years, I started driving. It was more of when it shifted, the paradigm shifted, and it was more of that relationship that you have with God or whatever you choose to believe in is between you and him. I can't force that upon you. I mean, I was surrounded by it growing up, so it was inevitable, not necessarily, but that it would you know, resonate with me to, to a certain extent. But still, the seeking out of that relationship and that relationship being way more important than religion, with air quotes, was something that I had to do on my own. So. so did you go to church on your own once you were able to drive? I did. Yeah? I did. I did. I questioned, I questioned everything, but I questioned a lot of it, and I still do. I consider myself a Christian, and I'm, I attend my church regularly, and I serve. It's a pretty large church in Dallas, so they a lot of uh, serving is incorporated in how it's run. I mean, it's only a small amount of people that are on staff. The rest are, they just serve, sign up to serve in different act, um, areas of the church. But, yeah, I do. I decided that relationship to me was existential. I couldn't not have that relationship. It just grounded me and it just it made sense to me that there's an entity that's bigger than me, that created me, that loves me and wants a relationship with me. And it's there for me if I want it. If not, then that's not the case. You don't have to have a relationship. Well, I do find it interesting that your dad put it to you this way, that you have the option, but it's your salvation. Exactly. So that's kind of like that's a good salesperson there. (laughs) Exactly. And I think the reason he did it was because he was similar. He grew up in the church, air quotes, but he had to have a, a, a Paul on Damascus, on the Damascus Road experience to where it was like his awakening to where he wanted to pursue a relationship with God and pursue being a member of the church. And he didn't want that calling at all to be a minister, but it's something that he felt and that he was called to do. And we're all, I feel like we're all called to do something with some purpose. When you figure that out, how you figure that out is, I think it's interesting as part of the journey, but for him, I think that's why he, he took that approach with us because it was his approach. He didn't like anything being forced on him, and it was a choice that he had to make as an adult. He was older. He was 22, I want to say, when he truly started to be a believer and believe that what he had heard growing up was true. So, And that's what God does. We have free will, so we can choose to follow him, to be a believer, uh, to live like Christ and love like Christ, or we can choose not to. It's completely up to us. So think that's what you're trying to mimic does your lineage go way back in that part of the country so your grandparents from napoleonville they are yeah actually so and this is a couple years back there was this uh so a buddy of mine was coaching at hl bourgeois they wanted to do a black panther uh themed civil it was february in february black panther themed some type of activity like a theater like some type of performance performing arts thing just to tribute them and that they weren't a hate group, but they were more of a community group, but they were and sometimes violent, um, but they had good intentions. Anyway, I say that to say, so I talked to my great grandma. I went and sat with her. She's 88, uh, which is kind of young for a great grandma, but I went and talked to her about it. And she mentioned that things were so different and I never heard her talk about it. This is that they don't talk about things it just doesn't come up, you know, at Christmas or Thanksgiving. But I talked to her about how things were around that time in the 60s, in the 50s. And she said, interestingly enough, we didn't want to integrate. 
I'm like, what do you mean? Like, that's, that's what they taught us. You know, she was like, of course, because to the victor goes the spoils. Like, but integration killed the black economy. LBJ's new deal, which was a little bit later on. But she said we had everything. We had a grocery store. My great grandfather owned the, the pharmacy. Uh, and he also owned a kind of like a teen club, like a nightclub in the city, in Napoleonville. And once integration happened, everyone went to the local white grocery store or drugstore and nightclub. So it kind of, it killed the black economy. It's like we, it was separate, but it was a thriving thing. It was everyone had their part in the economy. So interesting. I'd never, never heard that before. What prompted her to talk about that? When I talked to her about the the Black Panther thing, we just kind of got into, I was just asking her, how was it then? Because there's no, TV wasn't as big of a thing, you know, so it's not as documented and filming wasn't as big of a, as it is now documenting everything, social media. And she just went on and on and on and just kind of went down a rabbit hole of how things were compared to how they are now. She was talking about how we just live life too fast. And like our years are fly past because we keep, we have this keeping up with the next person or comparing yourself to people instead of just living your life and living to, for your happiness or joy. I'd rather say, um, so yeah, and it was just it was a great conversation. It's one I'll never forget. I imagine. I hope you record a conversation. If you want me to do it for you, I'm, I'm happy to have her here. Yeah. I'll go to her if you want. We that could do be... it together. But I'd love to talk to her. Yeah, that would be incredible. She might be okay with that. I have to. Nineteen sixty is sixty-one years ago. She would have been twenty-seven years Shit. old. My age, just about. Yeah. So she had a huge family. I'm not sure. How old my oldest great uncle is, but she had ten kids. Nine are still alive, and the same house that they were raised in, she still lives in. Wow. So it's incredible. It's yeah, I love to go back and just to, just to be there. In COVID, of course, altered that. But pre-COVID, we would actually get all of them and all the great grandkids. So it was it's a good time. What did they do to support ten kids? What kind of work? So my great grandpa was actually in the military and he had those two small businesses and she just supported, she couldn't do anything else. I mean, it was 10 yeah. kids running around. But as the oldest got older, uh, she was able to work some kind of nursing. She was a more of like the medical field. So does she have strong opinions on race relations today? Surprisingly, not so much. From what she shared with me, she thinks it's kind of, it's not like it's being portrayed to be. So it's being portrayed to be as, super divisive and we're so different. But when you really get to know people, black, white, we're more, far more alike than we are different. And that's something she shared with me and it kind of changed my perspective on it. And it makes sense. Once you really get to know people, like she said, she said something about um, space is, is the issue. She prompted me to read a book from uh, W.B. Du Bois called the souls of black folks. And he talks in it about how, whether it's by design or just happenstance, the best of one race is normally in close relations with the worst of another race. So what you get is a bad picture of others. But if it was in close proximity where you had the the best of one race with the best of the other race, you would see you're just alike to an extent. So that was a cool perspective. I got a lot from that book. His book was incredible. Uh, that was he published in 1903. And some of the same issues he was talking about then are just as relevant now because of that lack of of he called it the veil or the color line mm-hmm. that separated whites and blacks in that time. But it feels like they're trying to thicken the veil now to where it's more divisive. And it just isn't like, it's just, it's just you meet, I've got so many different friends of so many different 
ethnicities and backgrounds. And I know you do as well. And sh- you just have way more in common than you have separate. Yeah, I love what the neuroscientist Ben Carson says that once you open up someone's brain to perform surgery, you cannot tell the color of their skin. Yeah. There's 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 no way to determine what exactly. color someone is. Exactly. Were you raised to believe that you lived in a racist society? Wasn't necessarily a racist society, but just always beware that people don't have your best interest in mind, whether that's white, black, or indifferent. There's bad people just in general. Mm-hmm. So always be hyper aware of your surroundings, especially being a black man in America. They would always harp on that. Can it be a dangerous place for you, depending on how you where you put yourself, especially even just with black on black violence or black on black crime because of it's like a crabs in a bucket mentality that was I found out in uh, I had a sociology class and we talked about it. This is high school or college? This was in college. This is at Nichols. Willie Lynch, actually, the Willie Lynch letters. So it was by design that slave owners, slave traders would pit people of African descent against each other because they knew that they could control them if they were pitted against each other. And he said that it would last in his book. He said that it would last 400 years or something like this. It was just crazy span of time. But he said it would last that long. Uh, it was colorization. I had to write a paper on colorization, which is. Uh, light skin versus dark skin. If you hear, probably hear that people joke about it now, but it was a thing. It was, and it was a subliminal thing that, oh, if we put the light skin people in the house and then they won't, they'll feel like they're higher or mightier than the dark skin, the more dark skin people that are in the field. And that causes division or to break up the nuclear home, which is in shambles now. As a result, kind of think of some of those LBJ type deals. Yeah. LBJ was mid sixties. Prior to LBJ, so around 1960, the out-of-wedlock birth rate was about 20% in the black community. Today, it's roughly 74%, something like that. So that was a big-time intervention, and correlation is not causation, of course, but many people tend to think that there's a strong correlation there. It's unfortunate. But it's so interesting to hear your great-grandmother say that, that we weren't for integration. We were fine. Everything was good. So did they did they try to form coalitions to try to bring back some more segregation to a, a previous happier time for them? No, well, kind of once it was already in the – it had such a massive movement, the Civil Rights Movement was – that they just wanted at that point for it to be more equal. It's like, okay, so we have to do this. Well, at least let it be equal. Uh, but they found that it was worse afterwards than at least equal. Uh, for example, so Assumption High School is a high school in Assumption Parish. Uh, Where you attended, correct? I did not, no. So funny enough, my parents both worked in that parish for the school board. But I went to Sanimal High School, mainly for football. The program's just better. And it's more exposure there. The high school for blacks at the time was W.H. Reed and they integrated it and they had different time schedules for when they could go to school. It was just, it was a mess, but they didn't want to end again. They didn't want to integrate the schools. They just wanted new books. When assumption high school got new books, you know, they didn't want to get the used books from assumption. They wanted to get new books from, from federal money as well. Oh, okay. And I've talked to a couple of different people that were, that went to my church that were from the area uh-huh. and just growing up hearing their stories about it were incredible up until recently assumption high school, to my knowledge, still had two proms. Uh, which is incredible to me. Like <laughs> maybe up until 10 years ago, I want to say this was a thing. And it's just, 
It's weird. I released a podcast with my grandfather's biographer, and he talked a lot about Branch Rickey, or at least there was an article that he shared with me where Branch Rickey was featured. Branch Rickey, for the uninitiated, was the guy responsible for getting Jackie Robinson into Major League Baseball with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So he talked about in the article a conversation that my grandfather had with Branch Rickey. And I didn't find out until after I published that article, I had a family member tell me that my grandfather had a restaurant slash bar right on Bienville, right around the corner from here, that had the restaurant and then they had the black people's door next to it. So it was like the the white folks restaurant and then the black part of the restaurant and they had a separate door for them. That was only, what, 60 years ago? I mean, can you imagine now this is this door is for the black people, this door is for white people? It, it's incredible, yeah. especially I, mean, I have a, a mixed race daughter. Where the hell do they go? You know, so times change really, really fast. Exactly. Yeah, it's oh, man. Incredible. Did you play multiple sports in high school? I did until my junior year. I played basketball. I love basketball. It's my favorite sport. But I just kept growing wide instead of tall. So <laughs> football kind of chose me, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah, I actually coach basketball now and football. But I really love coaching basketball. I love to develop deep relationships with my players. So I can understand them and know how to coach them, which is sure. best suited for them. Uh-huh. Uh, but with basketball, you can do it with several teams. So I coach AU basketball now. You can reach more people is what I'm trying to get at. You can only coach one football team at a time. But with basketball, I was coached six or seven teams last year. So it's just more people that you can reach. And that's why I think I enjoy basketball a little more. But the football, man, those relationships. I still talk to players that I coach a couple years back at Assumption. And just catching up with them, seeing where they are and, and how they're developing and growing into manhood. There are a lot of things that are tough to pronounce down here. So can you spell the high school that you went to for those listening who aren't from Louisiana? Yes. Yeah, so it's it's, And I don't necessarily believe that I pronounce right all the time. It's St. Amant. So it's St. Like a Catholic saint. S-A-I-N-T. And then Amant. A-M-A-N-T. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of times you see it written... S T period A M A N T. Correct. But then you'll hear it said Santa And it's like, well, what the hell is Santa Mall? Exactly. So unless you're from this area, you're not real familiar. But they had better they had a better football program and so that's what got you there. They did. And when you say you grew wider rather than taller, what kind of growth spurt did you hit? What were you looking at? So I was a chubby kid growing up, and then I had a huge growth spurt. I was five ten in sixth grade, and then I started to work out. When I started to work out, it was pretty obvious it was going to be football and not basketball. I kept playing because basketball is fun, but football was it was it was going to happen. It was kind of inevitable, and I was good at it. I mean, and was a position chosen for you, or did you choose the position that you wanted I to play? I think I pretty much ate my way into defensive line. At first, I was more of a running back, and then just as I developed, I didn't. I had to play offensive line, defensive line, and with my athleticism, it was better suited for a defensive line, and I was. Taller, but I wasn't six five, six six to play offensive line yeah. at a high level. But I was tall enough to play defensive line at high level, and it's kind of how the progression happened. And were you a standout? Were you highly recruited? Not really. I had a couple offers. I actually almost took an academic scholarship because 
I was just going to walk on. It was actually Abilene Christian. They gave me a full academic grad, and they had an amazing program there for what I wanted to go to school for. I ended up going to school for Allied Health, and I was very close to going there. And then Nichols came in and offered me, and my mom, of course, wanted me to stay close to home. And I'm so glad I did because of how life played out with some losses. It was more than three. I'm trying to think of what schools. The three Division One schools. The rest were smaller schools, so D2s. Uh, any small NAIAs, those, which I wasn't interested in at all. Did you so. get, give any consideration to walking on at like an LSU or? No, in hindsight, twenty twenty, I hundred percent believe I should have because I didn't realize what walking walking on so frowned upon. But once you actually get into the the thick of college ball, you realize that the walk ons have an opportunity as well. I mean, you, you, as long as you're there, you can prove yourself. I mean, they won't, ha- they won't have as many opportunities as someone who's on scholarship, but I know a bunch of walk ons who thrived and started, you know, within a year, two years and got scholarships. So it's, it's, it happens all the time. If I'd have known what I know now, I would have walking on at a, maybe an LSU or another school that was a, a bigger school that wasn't as interested in offering me a scholarship. Life is so interesting that you only get one shot. Right. Like you and I both got the small school experience. What we have undergrad, 8,000 maybe. Yeah. Right around 8,000. I think there are 10 now, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I believe, but I could be very wrong on that. But we have no idea what it's like to go to a school that every football game has 100,000 screaming fans and they're on ESPN and they have this big sorority fraternity life and the tailgating and you miss out on all of that and and there's a lot to be said for the for the networking aspect of it when you go for a job interview there's a high likelihood like you being in Dallas that there'll be guys that you interview with that went to TCU and SMU and University of Texas and and that that always bonds people together really quickly as an NCAA athlete especially at smaller schools you know the conference schedule is most important. I think the coaches kind of emphasize that. But you can't help but circle those games against Alabama or Texas A&M. It, it's that way for us as baseball players, and we're only playing in front of Max, like at LSU, 7,500 people. You guys, if you get to play at A&M, which you did in 2016, am I right? 2017. 2017. How many people were in the stands? 105,000. 105,000 people. What was that like? That was an insane experience. And it's funny you say that about having the smallest school experience. I actually think it's a little better because it's more intimate. So it's, like you said, it's a smaller scale. So when I did play in front of the 80,000 people or 50,000 people or an A&M, 105,000 people, I cherished it because I, I wasn't. I wasn't numb to it. You know, I wasn't jaded to this incredible fact that a hundred thousand people were coming to see me play a game. Yeah. Not necessarily me. I mean, a little pretentious of me to say, but me to <laughs> play a game. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's, that was incredible. But those games were, I mean, when we were at A&M. I remember stopping on the field with a buddy. I was actually hanging out with him last night. We were five feet apart and we couldn't communicate the call. It was that loud and just thunderous when A&M was winning. But there was a point in the third quarter, we were tied, I believe it was 10-10, and you could hear a pin drop. And I remember doing a 360 and just the way 
Kyle Field is the stadium goes right up. I mean, there's not much space between the sideline and where the the, the stadium seats start. So it's it's almost claustrophobic. <laughs> but just doing that 360 and, and realizing this is a small city worth of, of people here to watch a game, you know, to watch some knucklehead 18 to 24 year olds run around and hit each other chasing a ball like that's it's, it's just it's surreal. But you, you don't come jaded to it when you don't get that often. So it's something I'll never forget. Yeah, you read about Major League Baseball players taking greenies and stuff like in the 80s. And I'm thinking, what what the hell would you need these greenies? These are like upper, some some sort of amphetamine. Okay. If you're going to play in front of 40,000 people every night, how can you possibly need some sort of upper to get yourself up? But you get jaded to it. Right. So to play at a small school, you get that one opportunity. Like I would have loved to be timed from home to first when I played at LSU because I'm pretty sure you just have that extra umph knowing that extra umph is in the crowd. It fires you up. You mentioned your buddy that was five feet away from you. Tell me about your relationships because I know you got a shit ton of friends. Uh, does it get awkward when you start talking about as a man thinketh by James Allen, you're on the self-development quest. What do your buddies think about this quest that you're on? Well, most of them make fun of me because I keep a journal like a, like a middle school girl. But, uh, we'll <laughs> see who's relate. laughing in a couple of years, but exactly. Uh, but it's, 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 it's interesting. I've always been a little precocious. So even growing up, my friends will make fun of me because I would, when I get into something, I'm in it. So fitness was a big thing for me. I told you I was skinnier early on. Very short time I was skinny, but I was. I went from chubby to growth spurt. But I was all into fitness. And I was, okay, what proteins do I need? Okay, I'm counting my carbs. And I have to work out. I have to go to sleep at 830 to get enough rest. So they would make fun of me for that. And then it's like the next thing. But it's just as I grow and develop, I, I've gotten used to it. That's what guys do anyway. We're going we're gonna to rag on each other. Um, but I actually have a small group of friends that we're about to start a book club to have that space where we can talk about Books like As a Man Think About James Allen or Richest Man in Babylon, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, these self-development books that are, I think, paramount to a young man like myself and like, like these guys are to our development. And this, a lot of these things have stood the test of time. So if it worked then and it's still working now, how could I not use it for betterment? It just... Yes. It just <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but when I spoke to you guys, your team, the Nickel State football team, I said, Bill Belichick has written a book. What's your excuse for not reading that book? You're on a bus for 10 hours. What are you going to do with your time? And how you manage your time means everything for how your life works out. You're captive on a bus. You can do one of three things. You can play cards, which which is fine. It's fun to camaraderie is there spend two hours playing cards but hey spend at least two hours with a book because other people aren't doing it if you want to separate yourself you better be doing some things that other people aren't willing to do and one of those things nowadays is reading people are not reading so i'm so glad to hear you say that and as a man thinketh is whoo that is a great place to start is that the first book you guys are going to read yeah we're going to start off with that one because it's a shorter book and to the guys that are going to be in the group, it's going to be a page turner. I've, I think I'll be the only one who's read it already, but I'm going to also spearhead the first couple of weeks. We're planning on doing a short Zoom call in the morning on a Saturday and just kind of going over what we've read. We'll probably do chapter by chapter with a book like As a Man Thinking. We're looking into how we're going to 
kind of change it based on the book. But I'm excited to see everyone's perspective and how different things resonate with them because we all perceive things differently uh, and we all internalize things differently. Well, you're you're a different man every time you read it. That is a great book to start with. I love the idea of a book club. But one thing I will say is I hope you have a plan to incentivize maintaining the group because you will have guys fall off. It's very hard to keep a book club going for more than, say, two or three books. So is that something you've thought about? How can you maybe you all throw a dollar into a cap? And if you haven't read the book, you know, you know, something there's got to be something to incentivize getting these guys bought in and stayed in. And actually, I haven't thought about that, but it's a good point that you bring up. And it wouldn't have to be much. If you would if you would have seen some of the things we did at football for a t-shirt, I mean, we'd have challenges at 5 a.m. <laughs> this one in particular, it's called the Colonel Takeover. So we started at Barker Hall. If you're not familiar with Nichols, this is at the far end of the campus. It was 15 of us to a rope, to a battle rope, which you guys have probably seen in your local gym. It looked like they're meant to tie ships to, to the dock. We started with that over our head, and we had the Indian run. So you start with the 15 guys. The guy at the back has to sprint to the front. Holding, you have to hold the rope over your head the whole time. Sprint to the front, and now he leads. And then after so long, coaches will tell you, shift. And, of course, they're riding on golf courts while we're running, and it's raining. <laughs> and we did that all the way to the front of campus. So we did it all the way up, made the loop, come back down, passing the cafeteria. And one of my buddies is like, man, this why is this rope so heavy right now? We couldn't figure out what it was. And everyone had transitioned at least once to being at the front uh, by this time, except one guy. And we turn around and this big old guy is just leaning back, pulling on the rope because he's so tired. I'm like, man, if you don't get it together, because we're, we're trying to get this T-shirt. We're doing this for a T-shirt. <laughs> we want to win so bad. Coach Repo said, you get a T-shirt if you win. And I, that's all we need to hear. What happens so, when you pull the rope? Does that? Oh, it was awful. It's just 300 pounds of dead weight just on the bag, just uh. kind of hobbling around while we're over here trying to struggling to pull it up. And it's, it's raining. It's wet. It's muggy. It's hot. The oil seeping up off the road. It's just not, not good. So yeah, we making it back. So we scolded him a little bit and he got his act together. We decided to keep him in the middle, uh, as much as possible. So we just oriented it that way. And this is all on the fly, by the way. We can't stop. If we stop for too long, coach is going to make us drop the rope, do push ups, do up downs, which are burpees from hell, um, <laughs> where you touch, your chest has to actually touch the ground. It's the best positive punishment I've, I've, I've ever seen. I, I make my basketball players do it on, the gym floor because it's just the worst. It'll get your mind right. That's what I like to say a lot, but we wind up winning the t-shirt and I come home. This was two semesters later and I couldn't find my t-shirt. I was like, what, where is my t-shirt? And my brother has it on. I'm like, you don't understand what I did for that t-shirt. Like I, I, I'm going to need that back. Like (laughs) I'll fight you for that t-shirt. You don't understand what I did for it. Yeah. If I can think of a way to incentivize the group, Similar to what we used to do for T-shirts, that would be <laughs> very. That would be, it would be hardcore, be but hard, yes, yeah. <laughs> it would be very important. I, I love what you said, though, about hardcore burpees to get your mind right. Because I've had four friends call me in the last week with problems and and text saying, "Hey, bud, you got? Can you chat? I I got something I'm struggling with." And so the first thing I'll say is, please keep in contact with your buddies. Check on them. Make sure they're doing okay. Men need each other. There's something to be said for male camaraderie. From the outside looking in, all these guys look like they have it made. 
all of us have something that we're struggling with. It's a cliche because it's true. Everybody's going through something that you know nothing about. So check on your buddies is the first thing I'll say. But the first question that should be asked to someone who's going through some sort of major anxiety is, are you going through some sort of strenuous exercise? Because that helps so many people to get their mind right when you defeat yourself. I mean, when you beat your your own ass in the gym or on the rope team, it it clears your mind. It does something for you. Just the benefits of strenuous exercise. And not a lot of us consider that when we're going through a tough time psychologically and emotionally. Have you gotten on the bike? Have you gone on a strenuous run? Have you done burpees? You know, what have you done physically to get your mind right? So I like that. I think it's funny, too, that you mentioned that because a lot of times when we do start to get life starts to, to ruffle us a little bit, we get busy. The first thing we stop doing is working out. It's just the first thing everyone does it. Like, oh, I stopped working out. OK, then you start eating bad and now you're not sleeping good. And now it's just a sequelae of downhill spiral snowballing into where you, you need to call your buddy now because it's not that that's a bad thing at all. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the checkup. But now you, you feel like you, you, you have no other choice but to call someone and tell them the state that you're in, but maybe if you had a different way of dealing with it to begin with, you, you could be in a better place for it. You're 100% correct. One of my jobs now is I have bath duty at 6.30 p.m. For 25 years at 6.30 p.m., I've been at the gym. And so I have to explain to my wife sometimes, my daughter needs a strong and healthy father. And so I'm going to continue to work out. I will be here as close to 630 as possible. That's an understanding that we have. I'll do bath time, but I'm also going to get my workout in. That's a great point. That's a top priority for me. For me, that's where it all starts. That's the keystone habit from which all of my other good habits flow. You once told me, don't let a bad play turn into a bad day. How does a quote like that become internalized and benefit you in other aspects of your life, presuming the quote first applied in football. It is. It's a quote that I've got from football and internalized, as you mentioned. So coaches will say, good coaches anyway, they'll scold you for a bad play that you had, but they don't want you to let that bad play roll over into the next one. Then it rolls over into the next one. And now before you know it, you've had one bad play spiral into a terrible game. It shouldn't happen. You have a bad play, you fix it, you move on. Kind of like in life, if someone does something that rubs your feathers the wrong way at 9 a.m., don't let that same thing be bothering you at 9 p.m. Because now it's ruined a whole day that God blessed you with. So just having that mindset, I think, helps a lot. And I know it's it's helped me a bunch in this current situation I'm in with doing interviews and constantly having to get... Uh, this acceptance or this rejection and moving forward in this aspect, but are we going to go with someone more experienced in this aspect? And it's just like, it was a bad play. Don't let it turn into a bad day and just keep persisting and being diligent. Compartmentalize. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just because you're not doing as well in this aspect doesn't mean uh, all of a sudden you're a failure. No, it's just, you have something you need to work on. So you, you know that. And that's, I think that's what's so important about keeping a journal. To me, it reminds me of a film study, which is a sacred place in football. And there's one story I'll tell you about later about something that happened in the film room that is just, 
we still die laughing when we talk about it today. And it's brought up every time the group gets back together. Wait, you'll tell me later because it's, it's cursing it's, or it's, it's sacred. So, <laughs> okay, so, okay, yeah, okay. Okay. Understood. understood. Yeah. Uh, in that time in, in the film, it was, yeah, the, the, the conversations that happened there, everyone talks about locker room talk Yeah, yeah. and locker room talk is sacred as well. But that film room, it gets, it gets, it's real intense and the coach can be extremely candid with you and your effort level and just how you approach that game and that day. And it gets, I mean, it gets intense. So, well, I'll share some inside baseball about podcasting. Half the time when you're talking about a friend, you're talking about your family. <laughs> your cousin did that. That wasn't your buddy. Right. That was, that was yeah. cousin Ron or that was your mom, not that crazy lady. Right. I'm not calling my mom crazy, but you understand what I'm saying. Correct, correct. Do you think joy and happiness are the same thing? I don't. I think Unfortunately, a lot of people pursue happiness and they think that happiness is the goal. You hear it all the time. I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Yes, happiness is important, but realize that happiness is an emotion and it's based on where you are. Uh, it's based on who's around you and it's fleeting. So if you chase something that's fleeting, it's like the wind. I mean, it can change at any time. Happiness can. But the way I view it, again, it's just my opinion. But joy to me is something that comes from being a believer. I believe joy comes from God. Other people call it Zen, whatever you call it. It's something that you can work for or work towards and accept the gift. For me, being a Christian, it's a gift from God. So it's something you have to accept. But joy is a state of being. It's it's knowing that your good days are going to be better than your bad days, right? But that there's going to be a balance. It's like no matter what, through it all, you shouldn't be able to complain because you're going to have more good days than bad days. You just that's just the way it is. There's an old church song that says that I hear all the time growing up. It says, I've had some long nights. I've had some weary days. I've had some hills to climb. But when I look around and think things over, I don't look like what I've been through, basically. And I won't complain because it's, it's always going to be more positive than negative when you have the right mindset. As a man thinketh, James Allen, <laughs> and you approach life from an aspect of joy. It's like, yes, this is a down. Maybe that that bad play did roll into a bad day. OK, this is a down day. But tomorrow is going to be better. That's having joy. Happiness, on the other hand, is I think it's just it's not it's going to happen. You're going to be happy, but don't chase that because it's, it's you're going to be disappointed. I think that's why so many people are depressed and anxious because they think they're always supposed to be happy. Well, that's not the case. You get if we say in football, embrace the suck, you know. But it's just it's going to happen. It's part of life. It's when you sign up to breathe, that's just part of it. You know, yeah. it's going. It's not going to always be great. So having that. That outlook on life, I think it behooves me for sure. And I think more more people should kind of lean towards that. And it's not something that I came up with. It's just some wisdom that's been passed on to me. And it's biblical wisdom as well. Love it. So do you have any micro habits that help to cultivate joy in your life? Things that you do on the daily? For me, it's how I start my day. And I'll pause throughout the day. And some people call it meditation. To me, it's prayer. But I start the day with gratefulness and just what am I grateful for? And I always try to think of something different every day. Sometimes I don't, but just realizing that I'm so blessed to be in, to live in the country I live in, to have the things I have, which are again, can be fleeting, but just being grateful for, for breathing. Like when you start to minimize and drown out the noise and realize that there's far more to be grateful for than there's to complain about. And that's, that's 
kind of micro habit that I have starting off with that. And then I'll read a little bit. I try to read the Bible every day. Uh, some type some type of wisdom. What I've been reading lately is about being humble. And that's something we've talked about before. And the difference between arrogance and confidence. Well, arrogance is when you think it's just you that got you where you are. But confidence is when you realize that it's a sum total of the people who you've allowed around you that have gotten you to that point. And you can be confident in the fact that you have resources to tap into uh, when you do hit those rough days like you talked about. Or you need that buddy to call. Uh, that's how you can have confidence in your daily walk and also having the joy to know that it's a part of it. It's just a part of life. But the gratefulness to me always keeps me grounded and it always keeps me looking forward to making the most of this day that I've been blessed with. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen the video of the Admiral speaking at the University of Texas and he talks about making your your bed every morning and how that's such a great way to start the day because it tells you that you've done something productive. And I, I feel like gratitude or writing down three different things you're grateful for in your journal has a similar effect. It's such a positive way to start your day that it's hard to beat. And, and whenever people talk about neuroticism or anxiousness or going to see someone, I don't usually ask unless I know the person well enough. But Man, tell me about your habits. Like, what what have you been doing to try to fix it on your own before you spend thousands of dollars? As you know, I'm a coach. You can talk to me really, really inexpensively relative to these counselors, and sometimes that's all you need is an ear. Let's talk about where you are now because you finished your your degree after playing college football. What did you decide to do next? So I decided to get into uh, medical device sales recently. I attended medical sales college in Dallas. There's a couple campuses throughout the country. And what it does is it gives you a foundational knowledge of the business that is medical device sales. Well, let's back up. So you're living in Louisiana, going to school. You graduate, what, in May? I graduated in December after the season. Okay. Mm-hmm. Presumably your lease is up. Yeah, so we were month to month, thank God. Um, but after I took that month off, so we won our, we won our conference championship in November. I graduated in December. Uh, actually exactly a month apart, November 15th, we won December 15th. I graduated, took the month off the rest of December and started training for my pro day in January. And it's funny, like most things, I started to understand what it took to, to go to the next level and understanding the preparation towards the end of my career. You um, mean under, understand what it took to be like a pro correct, to, be to be at a that level. Yes. Okay. And it, takes the same amount of effort and intensity to be successful at the division one level, which a lot of kids don't understand. I didn't until, like I said, later on, I was a senior when I realized, okay, if, if, if practice starts at, we have to be here at three. Well, I'm going to come here at right after lunch, 1231. I'll get a stretch in or a little lift. I'll go maybe watch some film or go on the field to get a little work in early or just whatever it is. But realizing it takes more that this is what changed my perspective on it. I had a coach come in and he said that the standard is the standard. And I had no idea what that meant. The standard is the standard and what's expected of you has to be done. But what you do in excess of that is how you grow. That's how you reach the next level. That's what makes you go from a good team, a a 500 team to a championship team. That's what makes you go from a good player to a player that's dependent upon and a great player. What you do in excess of what is expected of you. So that is what it takes to to go to the next level. And I didn't realize that until later on. But when I did, 
know, things got a lot better for me, not even just football, but just in life. I realized that that's how you add value. You do more than what's expected of you, which you think would be now looking back on it. You think that would just naturally happen. Right. But it's not it's something you have to be intentional about. Okay, if this is what coach needs me to do, what can I do in access to that? And how can that help make us successful? You see how valuable I'm talking to listeners now, how valuable it is to play college sports. I mean, to learn something like that, to go into the real world with this mindset of what I do in addition to what's expected of me is an investment in my team's growth, in my team's success. If I've done, I don't know how many interviews I've done in my life, but hell, even the mock interviews I've done with you, you've told me before on an interview, the standard is the standard. And I said, Tyler, what does that mean? And you explained it to me. And I said, well, that sounds like something I say on interviews all the time. If I'm being interviewed, you can bet I'm going to incorporate into that interview somehow that I'm going to come to work for you and do in addition to what's expected of me. I'm going to view that as an investment in my career, in my contribution to this company. I want to be an asset. I want to contribute. I want this place to grow and I want to be a big part of that. So I love what you said there. There are so many transferable skills that you learn in college if you're well coached that you can take to the real world. And I know that you were excellently coached and I was, too. So uh, I'm sorry. Continue. How, how did you end up in Dallas from there? So I actually I didn't get my shot. Um, NFL had a couple CFL teams that I worked out for and it just it, for whatever reason didn't work out. Montreal was the the one team, the Alouettes that I was going to go and play for, but they wound up going with a guy more experienced, which happens. That first year is really tough. Normally, you, if you do get in, it's the second, third year. There's only a certain amount of spots on these rosters. And so a certain amount of guys that are retiring every year. So it's just, it's, it's not luck, I would say, but it's, it's, it's a numbers game. Were you devastated? Not really. And I'll tell you why, because kind of around that same time, I understand what it took to get, uh, to that next level and to be not just good, but great. I realized too, that football isn't, wasn't who I was, but it's just what I did. I think that's something a lot of athletes don't understand. And that's why so many athletes go to whatever vices they choose because their sport was their, was their worth. Like that's who they were. And I tell my players all the time, this is just a game. It'll give you a lot. It's an incredible blessing to be talented enough to play this game. And hopefully you get to play it at a high level to learn some of the lessons we talked about. But this is a game. This is not who you are. It's what you do. You are so much more than a two guard. You're so much more than a defensive end, uh, a quarterback. So that for sure is something I try to hone in. And, and that's something I did get around that time, really senior year. But I wasn't devastated when my career was over. It was kind of by my choosing, too, because I did get an offer to play for a semi-professional team in Dallas. But I just, I just didn't want to. I, if I couldn't get it at a certain level, I didn't really want to play. And that says a lot about my passion or lack thereof at the time. I think me ending on the championship helped a lot with that because it was kind of like we're on top now. So it's, yep. you can hang it up. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like <laughs> leave, leave good enough alone. But I wasn't I think because I left on, on my own terms, I think that helped a bunch. But I wasn't devastated at all. And I ended up coaching. And I realized that I was way more passionate about that than I ever was playing football. I just, Interesting. So that was um, – so I didn't expect that. You're in the town where you went to school and you started coaching there? 
one better. I'm in the town that I grew up in. So a lot of these kids, I knew their older brother or I knew you know their cousin or their mom taught me or in primary school or something. So I was back home, home. So okay. Santa was kind of like a, an, an adopted home. Um, but I was back in Assumption Parish with family and people I hadn't seen in a while because I didn't really go back that often outside of going to my dad's church, which was on the outskirts of the, the town. But A parish is a county for those of you outside of Louisiana. <laughs> but that was a great experience because I realized – that what I really loved the most about sports was the, the preparation and the camaraderie. And that's something that coaching is to be good at it. Anyway, you have to, to master among a lot of other things. I didn't realize the work my coaches were putting in. Of course, this was at a collegiate level, but even to be successful in high school, which we were, it takes a lot. I mean, we're putting hours in after practice, before practice, when, when possible, putting together, you know, game plans, putting together practice plans, watching film on this week and starting film for the next week, even before uh, we've played the, 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 the week for the current game, just so much that goes into it. And I got that in, co- in in college as a player, but not at that level. So just realizing that and doing that, I felt that I was getting more out of football, honestly, than playing it. And my back didn't hurt and my knees didn't hurt. And <laughs> I wasn't sweating. I was, I was sweating, but not nearly as much as when I was playing. So that was, that was great. Well, I love the parallels between sports and the business world. I'm a big fan of Charlie Munger, and one of the things that he says is that the will to prepare is more important than the will to win. And so I'm like you, having spent so much time in the batting cage and practicing bunning after practice or practicing stealing bases or sneaking into the weight room when it's locked, that sort of preparation is like a transferable skill that you can take to the to the real world and you realize that your colleagues are loafing. Like I remember Michael Jordan showed up to the dream team in Barcelona and he said he knew he was different when he saw his teammates loafing in practice. He said that's that's when I knew I, I was something different. I, I love to see that you're going to be able to transfer all of that preparation, which let's call it a skill set. You're going to be able to take that to the next level. And when you're on interviews, man, I know we've done a bunch of mock interviews, but incorporate that. Incorporate, say, the will to prepare to me is more important than the will to win. And I learned that in college. And that's that's what I plan to bring to your organization. That's powerful. I'd hire that guy. It's, it's behooved me already. I, it's something I try to fit in all the time in interviews just to let them know that even for – so any interview I've done, and I've done at least 50 probably just with different companies. And if it's an hour long interview, I'm preparing at least five hours for the interview, not all at once, but in total, if I can, at least five hours, I'm, I'm researching that person. I'm researching the product. I'm researching myself as crazy as that sounds. I can go back in my journal a couple of years or even just thinking of things that I've been through to answer those situational questions that everyone hates, even the interviewer, something to keep in mind. Uh, if you make you can make subtle jokes about it and sometimes they laugh and it'll become conversational and then they, they kind of put those to the side um, so you can actually get to know each other and not these pre-planned questions. But I didn't realize interview was a skill set. And I, for my first mic interview, I was awful. I mean, I think yeah. the first thing I said was I'm laid back. And I'm, I'm interviewing <laughs> for a sales job. I mean, that's the worst. I couldn't have said anything worse. But better so, to say it in a mock interview. than Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Much rather muff it up at practice and in front of. 100,000 at A&M. So I was actually talking to some of my buddies about that yesterday because they're all trying to get that next job 
are trying to get that that promotion. I tell them interviewing is a big part of it. It's networking, of course, to get in the interview. But once you get the interview, you've got to knock. You've got to portray to them who you are in a way that's digestible to them. I know you're a great guy. I know you're going to you're going to flourish in whatever opportunity you get. But you've got to convey that to them. You might only get an hour to do it. And it's via Zoom. You can't even get in person to feel uh, their energy. But that's just the nature of the beast. I mean, you've got to work. It's a skill set. You've got to practice it. It's definitely a skill set. That's definitely something you can hone in on and get better. And I have over the last couple of months doing mock interviews. And I had a presentation a couple of weeks ago. And I went through that presentation probably 40 or 50 times before I actually presented, just trying to incorporate different things that will separate me from the next person. That's something you have to keep in mind, too. It's not just how good you are, but it's the talent pool that you're with because you can be great. But if you're interviewing against someone who's got 10 years of experience, well, you've got to have a lot more character because you don't have that experience if you don't have that experience. So uh, with one company I interviewed with, they flat out told me, you're the least qualified for this position by far. But we believe in your character from what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks um, and what you've told us. And that was incredible to me because I'm like, you can't beat experience. That's what everyone says, but you can actually, you can beat experience. And just because someone has experience, which I was actually bold enough to start to say as I got more comfortable with interviews, but yes, this, this candidate or other candidates may be experienced, but that doesn't mean that they were good at what they did or that they'll be better than me. So yeah, it's a grind. It's for sure a grind, the interview process, but it's, you get better at it just like a lot of other things. And being a former athlete, you don't start off being very good at not, not getting pushed back on a double team or, you know, drag bunting for baseball players or, you know, knocking down fadeaway jumpers. That doesn't, that just doesn't happen. You have to work at that. So especially to be high level at it, definitely something that that's going to take time and effort. You can't, if, if you're going into an interview and you haven't researched for okay, five hours, is a little excessive, but I can be excessive sometimes, <laughs> at least three hours. I mean, mm-hmm. at least put in three hours worth of time and sure. just prepare for it. Because if you're not preparing for it, like you said with Charlie Munger, you're, if, you, if you don't yearn for that process or trust in that process and the preparation that goes into it, then you've already lost. I mean, you're, you're halfway to failure just by not preparing. So why medical sales and how do you end up in the in the big D? So I love Dallas. The weather's great. It's it's warm, which I like, but it gets pretty cool. And you get all four seasons, which is kind of rare for the South. But I needed to switch it up. I needed something different. I wanted to be uncomfortable. So I moved to Dallas because I'd always kind of been in the South South Louisiana region. Made the switch and wanted to get a medical device sales because I had that Allied Health background from Nichols. Phenomenal program, by the way. If anyone's thinking about getting into Allied Health and Nichols, they run a great ship. There's a lot of former... Uh, doctors of physical therapy, occupational therapists, uh, communicative disorders. They were actually in the field. Sometimes for research purposes, pro- programs will have strictly academic and they, academic professors, but Nichols doesn't go that route. To my knowledge, it's been a couple of years since I've been there, but their program is just incredible. So I had that background and I knew I wanted to do sales because your earnings are uncapped. If you want to make more, you grow your territory. Sounded like a plan to me. That's <laughs> just something I wanted to get a piece of. So I decided to go to medical sales college to make that investment into myself. Because I, I, if, if you don't have any foundational knowledge on the on the industry, it's just you're not getting in. It's just not happening. So you've got to make some type of investment. It doesn't have to be medical sales college, but it can be getting a mentor who's been in the industry, who's willing to guide you through um, this business unit and how he or she has been successful. And 
what they attribute their success and then maybe getting an opportunity after you've got some business to business sales experience and just navigating everyone's pathway is going to be different. But for me, it was just, it was the best thing for me talking to people who have been in the industry, getting a mentor who'd been in the industry. He suggested that medical sales college would be good and it would show to the people you're interviewing with your prospective employers that you're committed to yourself to make that financial investment, but also to make that time investment because we were there for six, seven hours a day. I mean, you can't work a normal job when you're there most of the day. So that in itself was an investment of time, which is the most important currency there is. So made that investment and now it's, it's, it's going to pay off very soon. I'll be signing a deal sometime next week. Did you have to go into debt to go to this school? I, I didn't have to, but I did just because I know, a lot of times there's tuition reimbursement from the company. So it just, it made sense for me. Uh, but. So what are we looking at? Like a $20,000 investment, $10,000 investment. So now they went up. So when I went, it was, uh, it was 14 grand, but now it's 16 grand. And of course you have to factor in housing and meals and all of that, especially if you you don't have a campus in where you actually stay. I was fortunate enough to have a campus where I stayed, so I didn't have to relocate for it, but a lot of people do. So it, it can be up to 20 grand easy. And it's what, a six-week program? Uh, it's three and a half months. Three and a half months. Mm-hmm. And then do you take a final exam? You take tests along the way. So for mine, it was orthopedic reconstruction, uh, trauma and biologics, and lower extremities. And all those words, just knee and hip replacements, wound care. So if you have big lacerations or you have burns, you use biologics to close those. Lower extremities are your the bunion your grandma's always complaining about. They come in and fix that with lap, lapidus procedures or internal fixation, uh, traumas when you have your know, GSWs or gunshot wounds, or you've got motor vehicle accidents and people have their femur sticking out of their leg because they had their feet on the dash, which happens a lot actually. But that's what my program was. So there's different ones. There's some for sports medicine. There's some for just biologics, which is a whole field. There's this one product where they actually use fish skin to help with wound closure. If you think about it, people tell you take your fish oil pills, it's for a reason. I mean, it's, a, it's incredible stuff and it works. It's very interesting. If you ever want to go down a rabbit hole, look up wound care biologics and you'll be there for a couple hours because so many people have different ways of going about helping the body heal or setting a matrix for it uh, to heal for your body to actually take over our scaffolding. Just two more questions about medical sales. Allied Health, was that a four-year program at Nichols? It was. Okay. Yeah. And you knew you were going to be in sales in some capacity? Going through yeah, that I knew I didn't want my earnings to ever be capped because I, the level of effort I put towards my whatever I'm in isn't capped. So I didn't want my earnings to be. So sure. Yes. And sales is a way to do That's it. That's an athlete's mindset. And what kind of numbers are you hearing? Uh, it just kind of depends. So I'm more of an associate level roles starting off. Uh, and those normally kind of in the 80 ish range. But that next position can be, I mean, you. You eat what you kill. So, I mean, your territory, normally you would get a percentage of your territory. So if you got a $1 million territory, you're looking at a hundred grand. Or if you got a $5 million territory, 500 grand, it's not always that cut and dry, but if you want to earn more, you grow more. So you come out of medical sales college, in all likelihood, you'll be somewhere in the eighties. Will you have commissions on top of that? Yes, correct. That's more of salary, but the commissions again will be whatever myself and my supervisor kill. That's what we'll eat. Okay. And then after you've been in the business three three to five years, you could probably make double the money that you started making. I when, will make. Okay. Yes, Beautiful. 
Do you feel like living in a small town and one of America's biggest cities has given you a different perspective on American society? Absolutely. It's it was a it was a little bit of a culture shock for me coming from such a small town in South Louisiana to being in a metropolis like Dallas and Fort Worth. What I did notice is I'm grateful for my small town upbringing because a lot of things that were just natural to me were things that separated me when I got to a a big place like Dallas. For example, just greeting people. When you're from South Louisiana, if you see someone, you acknowledge them. You say, hey, how you doing? Most people say, you know, how's your mom? How's your, you know, it's just conversational. But these bigger cities, it's, it's common from just to just walk past somebody. I'm like, why wouldn't you? In <laughs> uh, one of the books you, you talked about was how to, you talked about uh, on the podcast is how to win friends and influence people. A lot of the, a lot of the tips and advice in that book is you just naturally do it when you're from deep South Louisiana. You know, you just, you inquire about people. You, you, you care generally. So that was, something i noticed right off the bat i was like this is a little weird um <laughs> people are just so disinterested in everyone i think it's part of the hustle and bustle but sure people just move faster another thing i did notice especially uh, coaching aau and it was very unfortunate but maybe it's because of the age group we coach from sixth grade all the way up to 11th grade but some of these kids have such unrealistic expectations from what they see from their peers in social media to what their parents expect of them I mean, it's just, it's so much pressure. I'm like, they're kids. Like, they're 13. Like, that shouldn't be, it's, 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 and it causes delusion because they think they're a failure at 13. I'm like, you have no idea. Like, you, you're supposed to try things. I'm trying things and I'm twice your age. You know, it's like, you, you're not supposed to have it figured out at 13. They're like, oh, like, coach, I, I have to get an A in, in AP world history because if not, I won't get into Texas A&M. If I don't get into Texas A&M, then I won't be able to get into, Baylor's medical school. And I'm like, breathe, you know, calm it down. It's just, it's, it's awful. The pressure that they put on these kids at such a young age and a lot of in the area, I say, which is far North Dallas, it's a, it's a pretty affluent area. So it's a lot of pressure comparatively. So the, the Joneses down the street, well, their daughters both got into Texas A&M. So both our daughters have to get into Texas A&M. It's just our, our UT or whatever it is, but the pressure is just, it's incredible. And, And it, it, I don't like the way that I've seen it manifest in the kids because that pressure on top of what they see in social media, comparing themselves to one another and their highlight reels and not their actual well-being is awful um, what it's doing to them. So I think sports is an escape from that, but it can also just be a whole nother layer of pressure potentially. I'm at the age where my buddy's sons are the age at which you coach and they tell me it's a clown world. They can't believe how delusional people are and how even at 13, 14 years old, they think their son's going to be a big leaguer, not realizing that only one in 2,500 kids from that high school have ever made it to the big leagues. And even then, it was a September call-up. They got six at-bats, and that was it. So yeah, a, there's a lot of delusion out there. Mm-hmm. You want to do some fun questions? Sure. Social media, net positive or net negative for society? I'd have to say now net negative, but when my age group, so anywhere from you know early 20s to kind of early 30s, when we first got on the social media, when Instagram was new, uh, when Twitter was fairly new, we didn't post just highlight reels. We posted anything. <laughs> so it was a little different. It wasn't – it was – 
And if you go back and scroll back, most people have deleted theirs by now, but it's just we would post what we were doing and not yeah. with filters and perfect lighting and a selfie stick, just just awful selfies yeah. <laughs> taken on iPhone 3s. But social media then I thought was a great thing. It was a way to interact and it was funny and it wasn't um, a comparative thing. It was just a way to communicate. And I think that's what it was. I don't know what the intention was behind, but I would like to think it was to connect people who you would otherwise never connect to. Uh, and it still is that to an extent, but I guess because of the commodification of it or just monetizing it so much, it, it became this influencer that everyone looks up to. That's just unrealistic. And these you know, body image issues that girls have, even guys have because they only see these perfect models being posted and they're getting paid to do it. And I think it spiraled out. I don't know if that was thought of whenever it was first created or not, but I think now it's a net negative, but I, I don't think it started as a net negative. Not for me. I, from my experience, it was, I mean, I just remember getting on Twitter and just laughing the whole, it was never negative. It wasn't, you know, it was just, it wasn't the news like it is now. It's, it was just funny. Like, just yeah. like seeing some of my buddies or people I couldn't see because of distance, like posting them, like playing Uno or something. And like, it's just, it was just different. It was completely different than Vine. A lot of people probably don't even know what Vine is, but you super short reels, which is kind of like TikTok now, just reincarnated. But mm-hmm. it was just the funniest thing. It wasn't comparative and it wasn't. And so man. what's ruined it? People? I just- don't know. I don't know if it's a monet- it being monetized or. I don't know, or people being people and ruining everything like we tend to do. So it's, it's, <laughs> like people tend to do. Yeah, so I'm not sure, but for whatever reason, it's it's definitely a net negative now. Yeah, I've been to beautiful parts of Eastern Europe and said, and the friend that I was with saying something like, wow, if we had something like this in Houston, I said, scummy people would ruin this so fast. We don't want something like this in Houston. Exactly. Yeah, it, yeah, people ruin things. What's the coolest celebrity encounter you've ever had? So my all-time favorite celebrity is Marshawn Lynch. I know this to be true now, but he's himself all the time. He was he was on a cast a couple of weeks ago with, with Peyton, the, and with Peyton and Eli. Yeah. They didn't. The editor didn't get to him quick enough, so <laughs> he just dropped the f bomb right there on, on live television on Monday yes. night with the kids watching. He's just himself. I actually the Frisco fired is one of my buddies. The team I was talking about that it had offered me a contract in Dallas. My buddies played for them. And Marshawn Lynch's brother, who's a phenomenal football player, plays running back as well, was playing against the fighters in Dallas. And he was there, and he was just having a blast. Like, he's there, no security, just him and a couple of his cousins just, like, having a ball in this stadium filled with people. They play in the Co-America Center, so it's not a small venue. He just, again, there by himself, interacting with people, high-fiving people around him, just just having a ball. He comes back with two cocktails in his hands. Just like, it just for him to be at his level of celebrity, um, which he hates, I would imagine, and to still be himself is incredible. Yeah, he used to not do interviews at all, yeah, remember? Exactly. So did you yeah. get to talk to him? Uh, I didn't. I didn't get to talk to him, but I, I could just, the energy he was giving off, was, and that word's so overused now, but I could just see he was just enjoying himself and in the moment. And I feel like they don't they don't get that a lot being celebrities. So that was incredible to see him have so much fun. If you could spend two weeks anywhere in the world and money was no object, where would you go? I like to hike, so I'd say climbing. Mm, I'll go. F- I don't know how long Fiji takes, but I'd say in Japan and then climbing Fiji. 
and just spending some time there. They say your body resets at Fiji, so I'm going to do it eventually. So, but I think that would be a, I think that'd be a pretty cool one. That's a great plan. Let's say you're a Jeopardy contestant. As you enter Final Jeopardy, all three contestants are tied at ten thousand dollars. This is Final Jeopardy, but you'll have two rounds. Okay, you get to choose the category for the second round of Final Jeopardy. The first round, I'm going to choose. So the first category is Heisman Trophy winners. How much are you wagering? By the way, you may want to know your other contestants are Chase Forcade and Marcus Lovings. That's that's an easy win. If it's those two guys, <laughs> no, those are my guys. How much am I wagering? Oh man, well, I'm gonna bet on myself. Definitely on the next round if I get to pick it. I'll go for the highest title. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going all the way. Let's go. Why not? Okay, so you're you're risking ten thousand. Mm-hmm. First category is Heisman Trophy winners. Back during the Tecmo Bowl days, the of the original Tecmo Bowl, the Oakland Raiders had three offensive players who won the Heisman Trophy. Who were they? Scott Bo Jackson has to be one of them, right? Running back. Was it quarterbacks? Non quarterbacks? None were quarterbacks. None were quarterbacks. Okay, so Bo Jackson. Gosh, the guy from College Game Day. I can't think of his name. He plays receiver. He played some receiver and some DB, I want to say, or mainly receiver. And he's a kick return as well. I can't think of his name. I'm looking at his face, though. So those are two. Okay, let me give you some hints. Okay. One was buddies with OJ. Buddies with OJ. Huh. And another one, as you said was not only a wide receiver, but with a kick returner. I think 4K would have got this one. You think he I think Maybe. Coach Lovings would have got it for sure. Yeah. Was, yeah, he for sure. Yeah. That was his, that was his, his era. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Shit. Okay, well, I, we don't play around. I mean, you don't have the money to yeah, play around, too. Yeah, that's what I get for being a little, a little overzealous. That's what you get. From, yeah. Yeah, you bet it all. That's yeah, all right. All. Hey, you're a risk taker. Yeah. Okay, you're given an, an opportunity to have lunch with Drew Brees for $5,000 or Jameis Winston for $1,200. Who are you having lunch with? I'll go Drew Brees just because I know Drew Brees is a he's a big business guy. He owns just about every walk-ons in Louisiana, so I'd for sure want to have business with Drew Brees. And just, I'm actually curious about his story as well because that shoulder injury he had, having gone to medical sales college, he should not have been playing football again. I don't know how he got that redone or what doctor did it, but I would for sure like to pick his brain about that. Um, I'd say Drew Brees for sure. What is your favorite baseball, basketball, or football card that you've ever owned? Uh, Michael Vick card. I had a Michael Vick card that was... Tops? Fleer? Tops. Tops? Mm-hmm. I lost it. (laughs) (laughs) If you owned 100 Bitcoin today, would you sell any of it? 100 is a lot. I'd probably sell some of it and maybe do some real estate with it or just diversify that a little bit because it could drop at any point. So I'd want a more solid investment than just something that's virtual. But uh, what are they going for now? Bitcoin is what, 60K a piece or something? You it's tell me, I don't know, it's somewhere between crazy. forty and 60000 Yeah, I'm for sure. But you know what? Of, We're going to listen to this in the future and wonder what it is on this day. So let's figure it out real quick. 
sixty thousand nine hundred ninety-three dollars. I'm buying a couple, several homes. I have to. How could I not? I you agree. A hundred Bitcoin. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so today's October thirty-first, twenty twenty-one. Spooky season. My little girl's first Halloween. If I gave you $100,000 and told you you had to invest it for 10 years, that means selling whatever you purchased on October 31st of 2031, you have to put the money in either Bitcoin or Apple, Apple stock. Where are you putting the 100000 I can only choose one, correct? Yes, either Apple or Bitcoin for 10 years. I'll go Apple because I can see their products and I can see what they've done in the past and just it's a great predictor of the future. I'd go Apple. I think it's a. I got burned a little bit earlier being aggressive, so I think I'll be a little bit, a little bit less aggressive yeah. than Apple. So, first person that comes to mind when I say funniest man alive, Dave Chappelle. It's not even close. That guy's a genius. I saw him on Friday night. I You're am. right. <laughs> Joe Rogan killed too. I was very, very pleasantly surprised, and the roast master Jeff Ross. <laughs> Dude, funny guy. He brought 12 people out of the crowd. Killed. He killed. He's so good. But I like that. I come from an era where you talk shit, and that's funny. You have tough skin. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. First person that comes to mind when I say, I want to be successful like him. I would say my dad, because of the way he impacted people. Uh, it was on a smaller scale. It wasn't this just grand following that he had which he would have never wanted me to say the word following for the people he impacted but i'd say him the way he did it with with little to no means and he wasn't this super educated person where he had degree after degree he wasn't a, a doctor of theology or anything like that but the way he made people feel comfortable with just look into it you know just just try it you know like just try to try to pray a little bit try to See what it'll do for you. See what you can get from being humble enough to search for something greater than yourself. The way he went about doing that and not making people feel uncomfortable or not pushing or not prodding, but showing them a door and whether they walk through it or not is on them. I'd, I want to mirror that for sure. What's his average day look like? Tuesday, oh, Wednesday. <laughs> so you always, there was never a time that he didn't have at least two to three jobs. So, being a pastor is a little weird. It's so you can be there's pastors who that's all they do, but their salaries are high enough to do that. His church only had about 300, 350 congregants. So that wasn't feasible and he didn't want it to be where it was for the money, but he just need, I mean, he had to be compensated for his time, but he would always have these, he, was, he would either sell insurance or he would, he was a truancy officer for a while and just always kind of jobs like that. He didn't have, a degree, a four-year degree. So that kind of limited him as far as certain things. But the other ones you clock out, they're done. But being a pastor is 24-7. If someone calls and you got to be there for you don't have to be there for him. But he was the type of person that would be there for him. So, And now with text and email, it's probably oh, even gosh, more prevalent. Oh, gosh, awful. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it got to a point where he would have to – but my mom would want him to. He wouldn't do it a lot of times. Just turn your phone off or, like, have office hours, you know, because I'll, you got to be with us. So a lot of sacrifice – for his family. What's his name, Tyler? Uh, Johnny was his name. So I'm actually, funny story, I'm not named after him. So I'm Tyler. But my brother is Johnny Johnson the third, which is just a weird thing. But but yeah, Johnny Johnson Jr. was an incredible, incredible figure for me. And someone I still look to make proud. Just kind of in what I do. Married for 40 years. 
Uh, so he and my mom, man, he was 25. My mom was 20 when they, they may have met before then, but, uh, that's when I came around. Uh, so they actually, they were married for 23 years. So I was two whenever they got married, but you're just one of those people that you just want to be around. Yeah. You just kind of just put you at ease. You know, you just kind of, you've got that about you. I appreciate, he would appreciate that too. I appreciate that. I don't think it's something you can cultivate. I think it just kind of happens if it is, you know, if the, if that's how you are, that's how you are. But. All right, let's play overrated or underrated. Aaron Rodgers. Underrated. Alan Fanica. Properly rated. Adam Sandler. Severely underrated. Dave Portnoy. I don't know who that is. Scott Van Pelt. A little overrated. Ryan Clark. Underrated. Absolutely underrated. Actually, fun fact, so his brother-in-law played on Nichols football team with me, so I got to meet him. What he shows online is him, a hundred percent. He's I know. not. I know oh, him know, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I played against Actually, him. Actually, yeah, I remember you saying on one of the podcasts, you guys played in the same or, or against each other in a bitty basketball. Yeah, yeah, he called me Popeye. He's a he's a fun guy. He's hilarious. He's he is himself for sure. If you could ask Stuart Scott one question about life, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. Because he was someone whose life was shorter than it air quote should have been. I would probably ask him not what would he have done differently because you don't want to live with regrets or, or think about things from a regretful standpoint, but at what point he knew that the skill set he had was different or what did he, when did he know? When did that, when did that confidence come about where he Mm. realized he was as good at what he does as he, he was, yeah, he was just different. There's never going to be another Stuart Scott in the way he was captivating. So that's probably what I would ask him. When did, when did that come about? It's a great question. You were hosting a dinner party at your house and money were no object. Are you having four, six, or 12 guests? The type of guests I would like to have 12 would be far too much. So I'd go six uh, because I like to, I would want to have guests three and three that think differently to see how they come to an agreement if they come to an agreement. Would you like me to name the six that I think of? If you can think of them off the top of your head? Yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, my dad would have to be one of them. I'll say Marcus Garvey. W.B. Du Bois, because they had a falling out that would have been shocked the world if it happened today from the African-American community standpoint. Is it on YouTube? No, no, no. This was this is in 19, maybe 04, mm. 03. This was yeah, super dated. But Marcus Garvey believed that blacks and whites can never coexist. And he had this movement, which was about two million people uh, at the time of all African-Americans going back to Africa. And W.B. Du Bois was very much opposed to that. And he believed he's he believed that we could absolutely live in tandem. And he was mixed race. I mean, of course, obviously, he was the result of us living in tandem. So uh, but they had a falling out actually at the NCAA office where W.B. Du Bois was stationed. I wish I was a fly on the wall in that room because I would imagine that was a uh, was an interesting conversation. But they never did see eye to eye because they felt so differently. So I'd have them two at dinner. Just to, just to say, hopefully recreate that conversation. Let's see. I'd probably go LeBron James because I just want to tap into how the way he thinks because the way he thinks has got to be, he's had so much pressure his entire life. There's this guy, he's got to be extremely down to earth and he's just got to, he can't be full of himself because most people who are 
would have messed up by now. You know, like they would have tripped up if they were cocky or, you know, full of themselves. Or So I, maybe he is. I don't know. But I'd have to have him there. He's probably the most hyped athlete ever. person ever yeah. to have also lived up to the exactly. hype. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. Like that guy is just athletics aside. That guy is just don't talk about his talent on the court, but just off the court. How do you. I don't know, he's just, it, he'd have to be there. I think like, I got one left, huh? I might have to kick my dad out and, uh, <laughs> and invite, um, closer to his end of life, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And I say that because Michael, a lot of people don't know, but kind of towards the end of before he was, uh, murdered, Martin Luther King realized that his way of going about things was a little, but not necessarily conducive to the, the most success possible. As far as getting civil rights for African Americans, he actually has a quote that said he feels that he feared that he led his people into a burning building because what he was fighting for, which was that, which my great grandmother said that nobody really wanted, that integration may have not been the best thing for us as a people. So I'd like to hear how he and Malcolm would have talked about it at that point. They've had conversations, but just to be at the table when they're having that conversation and now them planning together. Because they were a little opposed, and same thing with with Du Bois and Garvey. If they can plan together, and if they could see the two groups come together, those four, what they could have accomplished. Mean, Marcus Garvey died a lot. This is hypothetical, of course, but to have all of them together would have been a lot of change for my community potentially. So I think that would have been incredible. So we're kind of talking about worsening race relations, but from November first, twenty twenty one, moving forward do you see race relations getting better in america or getting worse i think if people would realize how similar they are which most people do on a micro level and to keep living in that and not to drown out the macro cnn you know fox news msnbc where they're just throwing division and this hate and that hate if you drown that out I think it's I think it's in a very good place. I honestly do, and I could be naive to think so, but of course, it's, there's always going to be human, so there's always going to be, you know, that guy or you know this group of people. But by and large part, I think people realize that they're far more alike to their racial counterpart than they are different. So. Let's say four years from now, you're making one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars a year, and you're ready to buy a house. And interest rates are what they are currently. What kind of car will you be driving? It's a good one. Probably it'll be a hybrid, if not all electric, because I'll be doing a lot of driving. Probably a nice Camry, maybe. I don't know. The Maximas and Altimas are pretty nice. I drive a Ford Fusion hybrid right now. I love it. The well, car you name. pulled up in is slick. That's not it's yours. Not, but no, that's not mine. That's for that's for national rentals. But yeah, I'm not. I do like cars though. But, but to me, I can't get the the, the, the double whammy of paying interest for a depreciating asset. That's just a lot. That's, that's rough. If you think about it, like that's just a double, it's not a double negative that cancels itself out. Like it's just, your buddies know. get that like in your book group, that, the, the guys in the book group do, yeah. but a lot of my friends just don't. I'm like, man, you're paying $800 a month for a car. No, that just blows my, your car is losing value and you're paying a substantial amount of what you make. For something that just, I can't get it. I just, I, I don't know. For me to be a comfortable paying $800 a month for a car note, I'd have to be making, I, I wouldn't do it, but if I would, it'd have to be making, uh, Dave Ramsey has a rule. It's like, two, you can, the most you can spend is 12% of your take home pay on your car note. She says it should be around eight, 
or 10 at the most 12. So I guess if that factored out, maybe I'd do it then, but just, that's just absurd to me. Like it's just one of the best ways to to lose money. (laughs) If you want to lose money. You're right. So let's talk more about investing then. If I gave you a hundred thousand dollars and I forced you to invest it in one of three companies, Spotify, Airbnb, or Netflix, where are you putting the hundred thousand? That's a good one. So I'm Spotify is the app I use the most. I can't not listen to music. I have a Miles Davis shirt on right now. I listen to it all. So ah, that'd be tough. Who has the most competition? The best competition. Spotify really only has Apple Music as competition, legitimate. So they have, let's say, 50% of the market share. Airbnb has what, Verbo, I think, is their biggest competitor. Never use Verbo. That might be saying something. Netflix is a powerhouse, though. But they have so much. I don't understand how they stay afloat. They have so much competition. Every TV station now has a streaming platform. So maybe the fact that they're making it through that and still surviving is, I may have to go Netflix. I'll go Netflix. Netflix, final answer. Yeah, final answer. If you had to pick an age right now that you would marry the girl of your dreams, how old would you be? I'll say mid-30s, like 33, maybe 35, I guess. It's a good age. Tyler, if people wanted to connect with you online, how would they do it? Uh, So Instagram is 90reasons underscore. There's nothing behind it. It just sounded cool. Uh, my Twitter's the same, 90reasons underscore. I'm not big on Facebook, but uh, my whole name is Tyler Aaron Johnson, if you want to. There's a lot of us, so good luck. Yeah, that's that's the best way to connect me on there. A lot of my tweets are either uh, quotes I read or random song lyrics, so it's not just things that I come up with, but half of it is probably Kanye West lyrics. But but yeah, so you can reach me on any of those platforms, and um, I'd love to hear your viewpoint on any things we talked about today or just in general. I watch a lot of the podcasts and listen to a lot of them, I should say. Yeah, I should do that. I should give guests an, an, an opportunity to ask a question at the end. I know some podcasters do that. Do you have any pressing questions that you'd like to ask me before we wrap it up? I'm a sunset guy. I love sunsets and sunrises. And you've a lot more traveled. So where was the most beautiful sunset or sunrise that you've seen? There's something about an African sunset. It's like the sky is higher hmm. and it has like a purplish hue to it. Okay. So I looked forward to being on the savannah and watching African sunsets with a beer. So that's going to be my answer. But there's a, there are a bunch of close seconds. I mean, there are places in Thailand where you can see some of the most beautiful uh, sunsets. Even Costa Rica would probably be as far as being in close proximity to here, mm-hmm. the closest best sunset that you can find is on the west coast of Costa Rica. How long were you in Africa for? A month. That's pretty nice. You got to see a lot. Yeah, that's you got to see a lot, I would imagine. It's cool and it's something I'm proud of because I was thirty five years old, I had money, I could be anywhere in the world mm-hmm. and I was in Africa. And that's that's usually not on people's top 50 list. But I'll tell you one thing it did discourage me from doing is taking my daughter to the zoo. I don't think I can ever take my daughter to the zoo because I see all these animals on safari and it just feels fake to me. Like elephants, giraffes, I've seen them before. They're, you know, it's, it didn't have as much impact because I had been to so many zoos when I was a kid. So 
I'm going to try to force my wife to keep my daughter away <laughs> from the zoo. We'll take her to, what's that place? We'll stick to the aquariums. Okay. But yeah, I don't want to do safaris. I want to save that. Or zoos. I want to save it for safaris. Okay. But great question. How would you compare the Costa Rican sunset to the sunset in beautiful Thibodeau, Louisiana? Oh, see, I wouldn't even know where to go to get the, the good sunset in, in Thibodeau. You'd have to go to the highest point, I would imagine, which mm-hmm. would be a building downtown and look west, which I don't know that I've ever done. So I don't know that I could ever compare. Okay. So if you're ever in the area, it's like 30 minutes. We actually, we need to go. Uh, I stayed on a swamp tour for a while in Bayou Buff, Louisiana. And the sunsets on Lake Des Almonds are breathtaking. It's, 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 it, it's incredible. I mean, One's my background. I show you. It's just like wow. it's, they're incredible. I would. I literally. I go back at least a couple of times a year just to. They're, they're just breathtaking. Of course, I'm not as traveled, but I. I, I think it's going to always be tops because it's just. Was it near the bridge? Because I go over the Desalmonds Bridge the time, to probably. get to Thibodeau. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of. It's not over the bridge. It's actually on Lake Desalmonds, which of course the the bridge crosses. You got to just go by boat. Just try to drift out in the middle. And my buddy has a houseboat, which I didn't know was a thing. Uh, just on pond too. it's old six from the 70s so yeah it's kind of dangerous but the lake's not that deep where we go so um, <laughs> we'll go out there and just have some buddies and just sit on the roof of the houseboat and watch that sunset and it is it just makes you feel so in the moment it's it's incredible excellent what else you got so when i was staying there we went juggling. So if you're not from Louisiana, people either cans or PVC pipe, something that floats, you string a line to it, you put a hook at the end of it and fish bite it. And I mean, they just, that's, then they can't, they swim away, but they can only go so far because it's a, a line of them. So we went to jug line and we were catching a couple of fish and there's this alligator out in the distance. And again, this is a swamp tour. So he already has a plethora of alligators, but this one was at the time 14 feet. And uh, he can tell because of the head. You can tell from the head the years, how old they are and how many feet they are. And he's like, let's go catch it. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's go catch an alligator. You know, no, I'm not doing that. Like, why? <laughs> That's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. So all we had was a top jaw rope, which is if you watch swap people, it's a, it's like a slip knot. So alligators, they can close their mouth with incredible pressure. But if you squeeze their, if their mouth is already shut, they can't open it. They don't, it's not very strong. The opening forces in a lot. So that's why the little bit of electrical tape keeps their mouth shut. So if you put a top jaw rope over them, they're going to keep it closed. So all we have is a top jaw rope in this contraption that looked like a, it reminds me of the spy hooks that you throw over the building to scale. And that's all he had. So he throws that out. It gets caught in the web of its foot. We find this out later and we fight with it and he pulls us around. You've had an alligator guy on the show, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he'll do a lot better job of explaining this than I have, but you pull it or it pulls you around. You tug on it for a little bit. You tire it out because they don't, they don't fight for super, super long. Do that, do that, get it close enough to the boat, throw a top jaw rope on it. Well, this alligator, we couldn't, first of all, we wanted to keep it alive because he wanted it in the swamp tour, but we couldn't just hold it underneath uh, in the water, you know, on the way back. That's not something you can do. So, cause they'll drown, which is oddly enough, they can stay underwater for hours, but holding them underwater would be a little bit different than them choosing to. So I can't even drive this boat. It's, it's, it's he's caged in, you know, just caged in Navy 
was, I couldn't drive it. The way he had to contract it, there's no way I could steer it. So I had to hold the alligator up out of the water on the side of the boat. It's in the water, just its head's up, holding on to this, this rope. That's it. That's keeping it. You know, and if, if it bites his boat, we're sinking. Uh, so with the alligator now on the loose right next to us, we drive back a couple of miles to, to the swamp tour, finally get some electrical tape, which we didn't have, uh, tape it to jaw and then, and had to just build a pen around it because it was so big. It couldn't go in another pen and I have a picture of it. So it's true. Uh, but <laughs> is that supposed to happen on a swamp tour? Absolutely. Uh, no. It's, and he had to, it's, it's, yeah, it's actually, he had to get, a bunch of like legal documents and everything because you can't, he, he could have the document to have a certain amount, but with that one, it was a whole process that he had to go through. Sure. Um, so you're not supposed to just do that, you know, but he had licenses and everything to, to have them captive and profit off of them. But yeah, it's still there. It's like 15 feet now. Uh, so it's, it's huge. I don't know if it's the biggest in Louisiana or anything like that, but we caught it. That was a, a wild time. He should actually be a guest on the show. I'll actually I'll put you in touch with him, love the guy. It. So we'll yes. see if he if he wants to get on. I would love that. Thank you. You've already referred Will Stone to me. I'll take another referral. Yeah. Yeah, I love to talk to stud guys. Yep. And it's clear why I had you on the show. I'm, there's nobody listening to this saying, "Why do you invite Tyler Johnson on the show?" I you did a great that. job, my man. You're a great communicator. That. You're on a trajectory like no other young man that I interact with regularly. You're going to do really big things. Thank you. Friends, if you enjoyed this episode, please copy the link and share it with a friend. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. Thank you.